Heart podcast this week, we have Primo Franco as the disaster artists Dave and James pop into the pod booth, while Ferdinand's John Cena picks his classic Cena. Yes, this is where the magic happens. All that and more on the movie podcast. It doesn't think Twin Peaks Season 3 is the second greatest film of the year, but does think it's the tastiest meal we've eaten this year. Mmm, that Blu-ray. A bit jagged, get caught in the teeth, but it's so tasty. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Uh, this week, I am joined by two colleagues. Yes, two colleagues. We're back to normal of such lethal cunning. First up is our geek queen, uh, a lady who is, I imagine, quite excited about a newcomer on the London theatre scene. I am, of course, talking about Glen Gary, Glen Ross, starring. <laughs> Christian Slater and Chris Marshall out of my family in the role made famous in the film by Kevin, uh, by an actor, uh, by Christopher Plummer. Hey, Helen. You excited about that? (laughs) Super excited, Chris. That's definitely the most exciting thing happening on the London stage this week. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Tickets are just £15 thanks to an offer in time, uh, thanks to an offer in a rival magazine. Uh, And I might take a time out later on and take advantage of that offer and (laughs) go along for 15 quid per seat. Uh, Is there anything else that's happening in the London theatre scene? I can't imagine that there's any like world class musicals that are the greatest musical of our time opening like yesterday or so. I'm just going to stop you. She's talking about cats, right? Oh, good Lord, no. Jellical cats. Jellical cats. What a load of shit. Um, <laughs> if you just... Uh, excuse me a second, James. I'll introduce you in a second. I've just got to enter this lottery to buy tickets for £10 to Hamilton, which has just opened. <gasps> Hamilton's open! Oh, Hamilton's open! Oh, my God! Yes, I'm going to see it on the 15th. Woo! Of... December next Friday. Yes, that's amazing. What what time will this be for you? This is the third time, second time. This is only the second time. Of course, the first time I saw it was on Broadway with the entire original cast, oh. James. But uh, you know, I do feel a little bit like if Lin Manuel Miranda's not in it, this is James I don't Dyer. See it. This is James Dyer, by the way, and something about West Wing. <laughs> Continue. Fantastic. Uh, oh, but of course, Lin. It was segues nicely into the fact that Lin Manuel Miranda is in fact a big fan of the West Wing, uh-huh. and uh, yeah. and did a West Wing rap called "What's Next," which you can find on YouTube, and I highly recommend. He's wow. a big fan of everything good. Yes, he is. So um, it I was just the watching. Line, you ain't getting Uncle Fluffy, motherfucker, which is uh, which is lyricism at its best. I was actually watching him last night in Fatwa the Musical, um, which play, appeared in what? Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yes, and he performs which... a number with F. Murray Abraham. He plays Salman Rushdie. Which season is that? With F. Murray Abraham as an Ayatollah. That's amazing. Uh, which yes. season's that? Because I'm only I'm up I to. I don't know. Five. I watched it on YouTube. So okay, okay, okay. okay Extraordinary. Actually. But if he's in Curb, it must be this season, right? Because otherwise Lin-Manuel Miranda wouldn't be famous enough to have been in well, it Well, he wrote... I mean, he's he already won uh, Emmy, Tony, Grammy... Emmy a few years ago for writing the... Tony's um, big number. Do you remember Make It Bigger? What's, it was a Neil Patrick Harris number. It was fantastic. What's your mental process you're going through there when you're going, <laughs> did he win it? And then you you, you start going... Emmy, <laughs> Emmy, Grammy. I went Emmy, Grammy, Tony. Yeah. I was but are you saying it out loud inside your head? Is that what you're doing? I was saying it out loud in real life, Chris. We're you, not in you, were saying, you were saying you were mumbling it. Yeah. But in your head, were you going, Emmy? Or, no. That's I an interesting. mumbling it. It is very exciting that Hamilton is here. Uh, I am, I am uh, trying to get tickets. There's a £10 lottery every day. My wife and I, drink the game, uh, are uh, trying to apply separately. So far, unsuccessful. So far, unsuccessfully. He's quite wily like his old man. I thought you had tickets. Uh, yeah, but I want to get the £10 tickets. Ah, uh, fine. Rather than the, the expensive tickets that I, I bought. And anyway, that's like, that's like next month. 
And you want to see it now. Of course. When they're still in previews and forgetting the words yeah, and stuff. They won't be forgetting the words. Yeah. They'll and, be really good. And then, so the guy would go, I'm not going to throw it in there. Oh no, I blanked. Ah! I, I don't think that's likely to happen. I think they're Why pretty professional. Why did you go for Cartman there? I don't know. I don't know. Is, is Lin-Manuel Miranda in it? He is in the country. He has been overseeing the final stages of rehearsals. Well, that's much the same thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it is. He, they have the mar- his seal of approval, James. So, you know, a little bit less. Isn't, Lin-Manuel isn't Miranda's a, snobbery isn't that would be a bit nice. like the latter-day Alex Cross books, where they have James Patterson's approval, but really it's the work he's writing them. You know what? If you want to be this much of a snob about seeing a musical that you already know you like, that's fine. Okay. I just feel like you're missing out, maybe. Fine. As you okay. wish. Anywho. Anywho, anywho. We should have a question. Uh, and this, this week's question comes to us uh, via Twitter. And it is from basically, oh, I don't know, everybody on the internet. Uh, and it is quite simply, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? And this isn't something that's been specifically asked to the podcast, but it's something I've certainly seen an awful lot. And I've got a, quite a little bee of, uh, bit of a bee in my bonnet about this. Sure. Uh, I think you two as well, James. Helen, where do you stand on this? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? I mean, sure, but I like it's not like the Christmasiest Christmas movie. Like it, this whole thing. Oh, I actually like my favorite Christmas movie is Die Hard because I'm so cool. Like James, whatever. get out the PowerPoint presentation. Helen needs to be corrected. It's a movie that takes place at Christmas. Helen, we are both professionals. <laughs> this is personal. Okay. <laughs> no, it's just anyone who doesn't think Die Hard is a Christmas movie a has no soul and b should be thrown off the top of the Nakatomi Plaza. Well, I think a Christmas movie has to be in some way about Christmas. This is about Christmas. There's a teddy bear. It's a present. There's a tree. People give gifts. It is the Yule spirit in, in every way. You didn't say it's a time of miracles, which I think is a massive <laughs> yeah. oversight it's on Christmas, your part. It's Christmas, Theo. It's a time of miracles, so be of good cheer and accept that like, this is in fact I didn't Christmas actually movie. deny mm. it was a Christmas movie. I would p- refer you back to my earlier statement. This is true. What you're, I said you're is... You argue with Helen for argument's sake. I know. It contains the, people, the words ho, ho, ho. I mean, you know, so do my initials, but, like, what does that have to do with anything? I just think that the people who... Some of the worst people in the world go, actually, my favourite Christmas movie is Die Hard. Bet you didn't know there was a Christmas movie. Also, <laughs> some of the best people in the world. Yeah, some of the, two, mm. two of the very best people <laughs> in the world. And actually, I don't even think it is the best Christmas movie ever made, which is weird because it's one of the best movies ever made, but it's not National Lampoon's yes, Christmas Vacation. That's because it's not very Christmassy. Like, so well, I will Helen. allow it as a Christmas movie. I will okay. allow it as a great movie. Obviously, I'm not an idiot. This is where but I'm going to have to doesn't the make it out. the greatest Christmas movie. This is the point, people. It is a movie that is bedecked with Christmas jewels. It is a movie that is as Christmassy <laughs> as Scrooge. It is as Christmassy as Ant and Deck doing something Christmassy at Christmas, which I'm sure is something that they do. I don't really know. I don't watch ITV. But... People have been saying to me that like, you know, you, a lot of people are are, are, are correct. The, the noted historian and author Greg Jenner uh, is someone who's in my camp, and he is saying that yes, this is a Christmas movie. John Rain as well, Mr. Ken Shabby on Twitter is also in my camp. This is a Christmas movie, but a lot of people have been saying to me recently, it's a movie that takes place at Christmas. It's not the same thing. Wrong. Die Hard is not accidentally set at Christmas. It is not like John McTiernan got on set and the set decorator had gone, I didn't really know what to do, Mr McTiernan, so I just stuck a Christmas tree there. And John McTiernan goes, well, I guess this is a Christmas movie now. Okay, 
This is a movie that is entirely based around Christmas and the idea that Christmas is an agent of change. And in many ways, Hans Gruber is the Scrooge of this movie and he is changed by the ghost of Christmas yeah, past, changed present from, and no, future. Changed no, from no, living I'm sorry. into death. Yes. <laughs> he undergoes a change of heart uh, in the 30 seconds it takes him to drop from the, the top floor of the Nakatomi Plaza. literally no evidence who of that. Who among us hasn't on Christmas Day sat down with a beloved relative who won't mm-hmm. give us our present and said, I'm going to count... <laughs> I mean, literally, I think, I think, I think we know the answer to that is one, James, and it's you. There not be a, be a fraud. Fraud. Yeah, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Takagi. I'm not saying, and I would remind you again, I haven't argued that it isn't a Christmas movie. I'm not saying it's not set at Christmas on purpose. Of oh. course, it's set at Christmas on purpose. Yeah. But why is it that doesn't Christmas make it the most Christmassy movie. This is an insane point to take. It, it, it is said, okay, the whole plot revolves around a Christmas party. The whole reason that the Nakatomi Plaza is not that well defended is because it's Christmas and people have knocked off. So Hans Gruber and his gang of elves, that's my understanding. Anyway, well, that elves, sounds, right? see, that immediately sounds anti-Christmas. You're saying no, no, that no. people are more vulnerable at Christmas because the security's gone home early to have some turkey. Because they're having a heartwarming Christmas family... Yes, and you're saying, and you're, what you're saying is that that you know that is something that is a terrifying prospect because it means that you know robbers posing as terrorists Not for will. Them. They're loving it. They're at home having a lovely Christmas dinner with their family. Meanwhile, yes, the but they're going to be screwed. potentially out of work come the well, December twenty sixth because you know Nakatomi Tower has presumably out of action for quite some time until the structural engineers get in to ensure that everything is still safe. Well, Helen, I got news for you. I'm really, really sorry, but bad things happen at Christmas. Dan and Angie got divorced <laughs> on Christmas Day. Do you remember well, that? I remember Gremlins. I know bad things happen at Christmas. <laughs> Gremlins, also a great Christmas movie. I'm not all talking about right. even not just the Gremlins themselves, but, you know, Phoebe Cates' we dad. We could all agree the second greatest Christmas movie is, is Die, Die Hard, Hard 2. 2. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Die Hard 2 is great. Again, I have to question your reasoning. See, for me, Die Hard 2 is more is more in the second camp. That is a movie that just happens yeah, to take place yeah. at Christmas, but Christmas actually is integral to the plot of Die Hard. The very end, he the only reason he can shoot Hans Gruber whoa, is whoa, because whoa. he has sellotaped the gun to his shoulder with using Christmas time. No, no, no. Sellotape. He kills Gruber with a Christmas present. No, no, but in the second one, you have snow for a start, much more Christmassy. You People wearing uh, fur-trimmed hoods, very Christmassy. Um, uh, and, and also Wintry. the lighting the lighting of a symbolic fire. Right. It's like the star leading the wise men to the stable. But instead of that, it's a giant flame leading the circling planes to safety. It's very Christmassy. So you're saying that Die Hard 2 heralds the birth of the second coming of our <laughs> Lord Saviour Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, look at, the, look at the initials if you leave out the M. Oh. oh my god, are you saying that wait a second. Oh my god, Jai Courtney. <laughs> Jai Courtney. It's all there. The clues are all there somehow. All the pieces um, matter, Chris. But there you go. Officially, Helen has agreed with us one hundred percent that Die Hard is the Christmas Christmas movie of all time, and in many ways a sly retelling of a Christmas carol with Hans Gruber playing Scrooge and the three ghosts. For all naysayers, take this under advisement, Joe. Good lord. <laughs> 
<laughs> right, so there you go. That's the internet's question answered to the internet's satisfaction. If you do want to get in touch with us with a genuine question, you can do so uh, via a number of methods. There is, of course, Twitter, where we're at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag, please, Empire Podcast, or chances are we will not see it. There's Facebook, where we are Empire Magazine, and there is, of course, what's the other one? A- email, uh, where we're podcast at empireonline.com. All right, time now for this week's first guest. He is a terrifying man mountain, but enough about James Dyer. Uh, so is John Cena, who is one of the world's most famous wrestlers, along with Giant Haystacks and Big Daddy. Uh, he's quite popular, isn't he, James? In he's the, the old... doctor of thugonomics. See, I don't know what that means, and I'm glad I didn't interview <laughs> him. Because that's all I've been saying all week. You go, oh, we got John Cena, and you go, he's a doctor of thugonomics, yeah. and genuinely lost to me, mate. No, he has a PhD and everything in thugonomics. <laughs> this is actually true. <laughs> It's not true. Sounds like a knockoff degree you can get from one of those. You know, it's like it's like um, Saul Goodman's law doctorate. Yeah, it's a lot like that. Okay, uh, what else? but he's made the move to uh, movies recently. Of course, he was in action films like The Marine and Twelve Rounds. But of course, he uh, made a bit of a comedic impact in Trainwreck. Indeed, and you'll be discussing that with him later on. Uh, he is lending his voice to Ferdinand, which is an animated movie which comes out uh, on the fifteenth, I believe. It does come out on the. F- Saturday, weirdly, which is either like the 15th or 16th. 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 I know yeah. because I'm seeing Hamilton on the 15th. Have I mentioned it? Probably not. <laughs> oh, good God. So the day after Hel- Helen sees Hamilton, you can all go and see Ferdinand. Yeah, set your uh, watches. Uh, so Ferdinand's coming out next week, uh, but uh, James went along to speak to John Cena this week and had a merry old chat about a great many things. Fair? Yes. Uh, also, this has relevance to Franco as well. So there's a whole theme in this podcast. Oh, wow. Okay. And along the way, you asked him to choose uh, a classic scene. A classic scene. Yes, this is a bit that happens. And I was, I thought I was very proud of myself for not correcting him for getting the quote and indeed the film wrong. Uh, but I genuinely, despite the couple of factual errors, uh, I thought it was a good pick. Well, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued to find out what it is, even though, of course, I already know. Here it is, uh, John Cena talking to James Dyer. Enjoy. We have a very special guest today on the Empire podcast. He is the voice of Ferdinand the Bull. He is one of the biggest stars in wrestling, and his name is John Cena. How are you, sir? That's very internet of you. Appreciate it. Here we are. There you go. What's it like to be a meme? It's uh, something that's granted me extension of my... Life as a storyteller. <laughs> it's uh, introduced me to a whole new generation of people. And as long as you're comfortable with being the butt of the joke, which is an <laughs> awesome exercise and not taking life too serious, it's a really cool thing. It is. And, of course, you are the voice of Ferdinand the Bull. Yep. I, I learned a thing about Ferdinand recently. Did you know this? That Ferdinand the Bull, the book, is possibly the most controversial children's book in history. Yes. Originally banned in Spain, Germany, and Italy. I, I know. It's nuts, isn't it? Because yeah. they, was it Franco thought it was uh, pacifist propaganda? Yes. Hitler burned every copy of it in Nazi yes. Germany. Yep. Uh, and I read they also printed something like 30,000 copies of it after the war and gave them out in Germany to kind of promote peace as well. Yeah. yeah. So what a... A strong enough message to develop opinions like that. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's a, it's about time it was made into a movie, and what a movie it is. Mm, yeah, no, it's it's great stuff. It's um, I think it's been accused of promoting communism, fascism, democracy, and anarchism, which is an interesting portfolio for a book. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing that people can uh, bring a bunch of that stuff away from a few short pages. Well, quite. Yeah. So, I mean, how did you get involved in it? Was it a book you knew as a kid? What uh... it was a book I was aware of mm. because it's it's been showcased in entertainment. The, the scene I keep referencing is from Blindside when Sandra Bullock references first. Yes, indeed. So um, I love movies about sports. I've watched that movie a bunch. So I, I knew <laughs> of the story. And she explains the whole story. Yeah. Um, but I never read the book until after I did 
the movie. I never watched the short animated until after I did the movie. I just didn't want to go into it with a, a closed-minded approach that I have to do something some way. So I just kind of did the voice, and we had a ton of fun doing it. And then I began to get into the book, and the story is beautiful. Mm. No, it's a, it's a lovely story, isn't it? It's a bull, essentially, who prefers smelling flowers to fighting other bulls. Yeah. So it's kind of be yourself, you know, don't yep. let people tell you what to be. Yeah. But th- this, this adaptation is more of an adventure, isn't it? It's not sort of as clear-cut, because the book is kind of a very simple fable, isn't it? Whereas yep. there's a whole lot more going on in this Well, version. to take a, a short story, as Carlos Saldana will say, with a big message, uh, to make it a feature, you have to expand on it. Yeah. And I think they did a great job of expanding on the universe, certainly making it more adventurous, uh, a bunch more fun. There's a bunch of new characters. But at the same time, it didn't lose the backbone message of the book. I think it, it uh, told that story pretty well. Yeah, so you have the fable, but you also have a dance-off between three horses and some bulls. Yeah, so, you know, exactly. Something for everyone. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, Ferdinand in this, he's the biggest, he's the strongest bull on the farm. This is presumably a situation you're reasonably familiar with. You've been wrestling for, what, is it 18 years now? Uh, 15. 15. For, on TV for WWE, about 15. Wow, yeah. that's absolutely nuts. I mean, how, do you, how did you first get into the sport as a fan? Just as a young kid, um, WWE just caught fire in the mid '80s. Yeah, uh, it was a perfect storm of, you know, culture at the time and and the the grandiose performances and the larger than life superstars. And as a young kid, I just gravitated towards it. I thought these were real life superhero folks, and just was enamored by it as a kid. Yeah, I mean, we were roughly the same age, so I imagine it was a similar era. Were you a Hulkamaniac? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, as pretty much every young person was. If you could watch uh, WWE at the time and you saw a broadcast, you gravitated towards Hulk Hogan. I'll be honest, I was more of an Ultimate Warrior guy. Well, he came along a little bit later. Yeah. I mean, I saw my first WWE match in 83. Oh, wow, okay, that was early. So uh, Hulk was around a long time yeah, yeah. before the Ultimate Warrior came through. Because it was, I think, I got into about 88, I would say. I yeah, think it took a little longer to get over here. But yeah, yeah, so okay, we had a whole thing there. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was an interesting era, though, wasn't it? Like, it was very, um, I mean, it's always larger than life. But mm-hmm. in the 80s, you know, the costumes, the names, you but know, if big you look boss at, man. <laughs> if you look at the 80s in general, the yeah. 80s are larger than life. Yeah. And I think it's, I, I look at those characters, and yes, we can look back and be like, man, they were just remedial, and they were what they were. But at the same time, what an easy way to define who you are. Like a, a, in a very wrestling rabbit hole question, a lot of the, the struggle that guys go through nowadays is being able to define themselves to the audience. Mm. But I know the big boss man dressed in a police uniform coming down to the song Hard Time is either a good cop or a bad cop. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's very true. No, I, I loved all that stuff. I thought it was amazing. I mean, do you, did you, you never got to wrestle Hulk, did you? I never got to wrestle Hulk. I was on his team once. Oh, really? It was myself, Shawn Michaels, and Hulk Hogan. And I was the grown adult looking like a spoiled (laughs) child, grinning from (laughs) ear to ear. I don't think I did anything. I just watched my idols go in and make magic. That's amazing. Sorry, I think The Rock got to wrestle Hulk when he won. We spoke about this once And I believe one of the greatest matches of all time. Really? Yes. I don't think I've seen it. Uh, when you watch it back, it depends. Like I always grade good entertainment for how the audience perceives it. Yeah. So if you're looking for a, a, a chess battle of two technical aficionados, it is not that. But what you do see is the iconic photo of a generation staring at a generation mm. and 75,000 people going nuts. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you, can, you can, as Gorilla Monsoon would say, you could feel the electricity. Yes. Like it's it's a um, pretty amazing moment. Oh, Gorilla Monsoon was amazing. I remember, God, it was really no, good. I feel really old. <laughs> 
Yeah, I love that stuff. I remember I, I watched it, I think, pretty much up to, I want to say, SummerSlam 91 was... Uh, do you remember that... <laughs> I'm just nerding out here. Remember the Ultimate Warrior lost his belt to Sergeant Slaughter. This was a big traumatic event in my childhood. And then they had the rematch with uh, Matcha King and, and SummerSlam 91. I think that was the last time that I kind of properly sat down with all my friends and we sat down and watched it. Yeah. But, yeah, that was kind of an amazing time. So if you, could, if you could have wrestled anyone in the history of the WWE slash WWF, would it have been Hulk? Was that who you'd have chosen? Uh, you know, there, there is a... Um large amount of mystique and reputation to Andre the Giant. Yes. And uh, I think just for the sheer, I guess, uh, wanting to be uh, reviewed and accepted or denied by my peers either yeah. way, he was the measuring stick. Like, as the saying would go, if Andre liked you, you were all right, and if not, you had a tough road ahead. Yeah, so he was I, I, just, a, just a, a monster of a man in the ring, but a... a wonderful character outside outside it as well yeah i'd heard that are you a princess bride fan anybody want a peanut i think i think <laughs> that is a yes <laughs> the princess bride is a wonder once again a wonderful story as well yeah it's i mean what are your what are your go-to films what are the films that really you know, you know i don't as far as go-to films i think there's so many great movies out there and so many great movies that come out every year mm. i gravitate towards like 80s comedies caddyshack back to school yes uh, I mean, and pretty much anything done in the eighties that that's stupid, <laughs> like Animal House, I love. But at the same time, it's not that. I mean, I love comedies nowadays too. Yeah. So it's t- it's very difficult to choose. Like, well, these are the movies I always watch. I'm always watching more and more movies. I think just like everybody else. Eighties was a very special time for film generally, whether it be action, whether it be comedy. You don't quite get those kind of films these days, just because the I mean, culture changes. Yeah, like uh, it was kind of all open forum and, and risky and lawless and pushing the limits and uh, culture was evolving as well. We began to openly deal with issues like race and stuff like that. So you see, you know, that stuff addressed in a comedic sense, mm-hmm. uh, it, which was the backbone of a lot of films. But like we've evolved as a culture more now. So it's you, you, there's a different movie making process. So, I mean, it's a it's not that it's worse or better. And we all, in a very nostalgic sense, look back on greener pastures. But there's some really good stuff out there now, like Ferdinand. Go see yes, it. Yes, there is Ferdinand, which <laughs> opens uh, in December, I want to say the 16th, doesn't it? That's correct. The 16th over here, correct. two days after The Last Jedi. So, you know, uh, here's <laughs> big here's, guns. I, I, I'm, I'm very aware that the people are excited for the Star Wars franchise. I'll, I'll say this. I would rather be a movie playing in a theater where I know there's a ton of people who have a chance to look at Ferdinand and be like, man, I'll check that out, Yeah. than be a great movie is the only release and not a lot of folks go to the theater. You Absolutely. know, those, those box office uh, weekends where you see like everybody stayed in, you don't really set yourself up for a lot of people wanting to see and enjoy the movie. Mm. I know a ton of people are going to the movies for Star Wars. <laughs> yes, they will. So maybe a few people who want to see Star Wars either check out Ferdinand or come back to the theater next week to check out Ferdinand. You, your first film, well, your first starring film was The Marine, wasn't it? That was 2006. Yeah. I yeah. mean, what was that like for you? I mean, to headline a movie for the first uh, time. Must I have didn't been. know what I was doing. <laughs> no, I, I mean it. It was, um, it was n- not supposed to be my movie in the first place. Really? It was, it was written for uh, another WWE superstar, and they kind of canceled. Yeah. So they were already in pre-production. They were like 14 days away from shooting, and I got called into an office and said, you're going to Australia, kid. You're going to make this movie. Okay. Uh, and, and my initial attraction to wanting to make movies was to further the business model of the business that I love. Yeah. And that's WWE. That's a wrong way to go about making movies because movies isn't, it's not the stock market. It's not black and white business. It's a creative business, just like WWE. 
That's why there's intangibles to define success and failure. You have to be passionate. You have to be creative. So the Marine was a financial success, but I didn't know what I was doing. And the whole time I was there, I'm half a world away. And Australia was a beautiful place, but I just longed to get back to the ring. And every movie thereafter, movie pace is a lot slower. Yeah. WWE life is fast. That was right as I was steamrolling into this wonderful phase of my life where like everything's going a million miles an hour and here I'm sitting doing nothing waiting on shots and doing this so I just thought a better use of my time would be like well I'm I got to go back to the ring fast forward 10 years a decade later where I've been telling the same story about the same character over and over and over again which I will do every single night because I still had that same passion for it but when you do that repeatedly when you repeatedly play your hits, when ACDC plays Thunderstruck for a yeah. hundred thousandth time, they do it because they love it. And you, you continue to ask yourself, well, why do I love it? And I think at uh, 26 or 27, I can be like, well, it's the fast life. It's, it's amazing. Like, I love WWE as a 40-year-old man because I love telling stories. And that's what movies are. You tell mm. stories. And it takes um, a different perspective. It takes a different type of performance especially with a voice role, but it's, it's still all just telling stories, man. Mm. So movies, I think now I've, and I'm very grateful and fortunate that um, many people aren't given a first chance, let alone a second one. So I'm, I'm only choosing stuff that when I go away, I know that I'm not just going away to film the movie. I'm coming to do stuff like this, yeah. which if you don't like what you're in, this is a root canal. <laughs> but if you do like what you're in, we can sit and I'll waste all the data you got on the recorder talking yeah. about how awesome the process was. So these last few years have been really fun. Yeah. And at the same time, it's cool to see an ever-changing dynamic in the WWE, how they adapt to all the things that are going on with my life. Like it's, it's, a, it's all really cool to sit back and step outside of what's going on and long lens it and see like, whoa, this is pretty cool. You know, and it's got its ups and downs, and you, you, you win some, you lose some, but everything I do, I put my heart and soul into. Mm. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. It's like being the star of a film is a kind of a big deal, but I imagine it's nothing compared to being like a ring star, like the immediacy of being there with the crowd. There must be nothing quite like that. It's, uh, unless you've been there, and I don't mean seen it, like been in the ring, Yeah, it's not, it's undescribable. I'm sure. It's, it's just not describable. It's a... Uh, it's something that has kept me going back to get my ass whipped for 15 years, and I'm still just getting warmed up. That's uh, incredible. I, I, I must admit, I tried out a number of moves on both willing and unwilling classmates at school during the 80s. Uh, it's a lot harder than it looks. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. I guess that's why you're, uh, you're put in, in special company when you're successful at it. Yeah. I mean, from a technical point of view, what's the hardest stuff you do in the ring? Like, is it... Is there a particular? I mean, or no, is it no. It's just being comfortable enough to do the things you want to do. Yeah, it's a it's a showcase of skill. It's a showcase of character. You use your tools to tell a story. So it, the toughest thing is understanding who you're telling the story to. Mm. We have a global audience that stretches from very young to very old and all in between. You can never please everybody, so it's very difficult to sometimes interpret the environment and try to use your tools to tell that story. That's the toughest thing. Physical stuff is fun. You get to jump around and be a kid. <laughs> you know, that's fun. But it's it's uh, understanding the element and trying to tell that story that's really difficult. Yeah. I mean, there's 
in some ways, rightly or wrongly, there's a kind of a stigma, I guess, attached to people who move from wrestling into film. Although The Rock's done it very successfully, yeah. Dave Bautista's done it yep. very successfully, Hulk Hogan kind of never really did. Yeah. Uh, but you've really taken to this, and I think Trainwreck in particular. I mean, you're like the breakout star of that film. I mean, the scenes you have in that are the funniest scenes in the film. Uh, in particular, like the sex scene you have with Amy Schumer is hilarious. I mean, what was that like to shoot? I mean, it's your first comedy, which has got to be pretty intimidating, and you're bare-ass naked throughout the whole scene. Uh, I think it wasn't a big deal about, like, okay, it's being, it, in, in a very real sense, it's being comfortable in your own skin yeah. and having faith in the people around you. I am wearing a towel. <laughs> that's it. And I am supposed to simulate awkward sex with Amy Schumer. Yeah. Uh, she was extremely understanding and kind and kind of let me like tell my own jokes and be weird and Judd is over there encouraging me to be even weirder <laughs> so when you are in the, and and they they tried to be nice I remember when they started filming that they're like it's a closed set and, and I didn't know what Amy was going to be wearing or whatever but like she was clothed taken yeah. care of I'm in a towel <laughs> so I just said for forget it like this is it okay i'm here yeah and a closed set became like sold out in a matter of 10 minutes you know a camera and then a camera op and then audio and then yeah. another camera and then another two people and then catering's in there before you know it. and like everybody's watching you so i think it's the ability to just not be ashamed of yourself yeah. be able to laugh at yourself because i i believe a lot of comedy is putting our hardships out there and and making light of it and then other people can relate, so they laugh too. Yeah, it was just having faith in the, in the funny folks around me, and kudos to them because they never were like, "Oh, that joke sucked," even when a lot of them did. So you only saw the really funny stuff. What you didn't see is a lot of the stuff that didn't <laughs> didn't make it. But had they ever once been like, oh, "What are you doing here?" I'd have shut down, shut up, been been in a robe. Like it was, uh, they created an environment to thrive. Yeah, it was it was awesome. That's kind of improv in a nutshell, though, isn't it? Because Judd's very big on letting people kind of freestyle and just using the takes that work. Yeah. So, you know, you've kind of got to encourage that. It takes, a lot, it takes a lot of patience. And uh, certainly he obviously sees something in the people he picks because he just, you know, he does an incredible job casting these people. But, like, he's very easy to work with. And yeah. like I said, it's a, it could be something very intimidating. He is not that way at all. He brings out the best in you. Like, he's... Uh, Amy as well. Like mm. it, it was, it was just a fun environment to be in. Yeah, no. So it's it's a it's a very fun film. Particularly the uh, the cinema scene is uh, another really good one. <laughs> and once again, really something that wasn't supposed to go that way. But like after being in there for a while and rolling a lot of film, <laughs> that's what we got. So glad everybody enjoyed it. One thing that we do in the magazine, we have a regular called Classic Scene, which mm -hmm. kind of goes to the back of the magazine. And essentially, uh, someone in the film industry will pick a scene, which means a lot to them, whether it be the greatest scene in cinema or just one they really like as well. I'd like to try a variation on that. Classic scene if you will. Okay. Uh, is there a particular scene in movies that you love that would be your standout Man, that you would pick for this, this page? This one, I think, just because of what it is. Uh, so I know there's a... I know... Um, this is going to, so Fox people are going to string me up, but guys walk with me here. Yep. So uh, there's a scene in episode one of Star yeah. Wars, which the Star Wars people are now on my case because <laughs> they all hated episode one. <laughs> but it was a scene um, in the Democratic Hall where they openly give power to the Emperor. Yes. And there's a moment where the phrase, so this is how democracy dies. It is simply just given away. 
And uh, I loved that. That one moment, that fleeting, wasted line in the enormous story arc of Star Wars, lighting the fire for this empire and the, the, the good versus evil and uh, art imitating life in, in, in some ways. Damned right, yeah. So uh, I, I really thought that was special. And that's um, the gift of a brilliant filmmaker to be able to try and touch all the bases, but at the same time send those subtle little messages that I thought was very special. It's a fantastic scene. Episode one has its issues, but it also has, as you say, moments of genius in it. It does. It I does. mean, that in particular and, is chilling. And I'm not too critical a person. I just watch, and, and if I if I enjoy the ride, I enjoy the ride. Yeah. And uh, that was one that's, that stuck out in my head. There's, there, there's a few more, but I think just because of where I'm, you know, <laughs> I, I like that one. I like that one. That's a good shout. Presumably, you'll be going to see The Last Jedi. What's that? You presumably you'll be going to see the Last Jedi. Not when it's out in theaters. I will <laughs> well, wait. I will wait because I will only be seeing Ferdinand. <laughs> Always on message. Good stuff. No, Ferdinand counter programming to the Last Jedi, but there's room to see both, isn't there? Go and see one. Go and see no. Go and, see and, and uh, what a great time for a movie to be out. Ever since I believe you know, Halloween kind of started to kick it off at Thanksgiving. Mm. The box offices people have been going back to the movies. And I think that's key to making a successful movie. Yes, there are movies that are going to do financially better than every other movie. That's why there's, you know, one, two, whatever. But the more people that go to the movies, and Star Wars has tremendous drawing power. Uh, I I relate it to WWE, the match of Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant, the one that 95,000 people went to the Superdome to see. So many people on that card talk about Ricky Steamboat, Randy Savage, the match before. So because they did the greatest that they could, and they essentially stole the show with a wonderful <laughs> performance. So everybody could be going to see one thing yeah. and then be drawn to see something else and be surprised with a bunch of good movies. And that's what's going to happen with Ferdinand. That's an astonishing analogy. So Ferdinand is the Ricky Steamboat of the holiday season. Ricky Steamboat, yes. Randy Savage. Absolutely. <laughs> and on that note, John Cena, thank you very much indeed. Thanks, man. A pleasure. Uh, so that was John Cena there choosing his classic Cena. Uh, that's the only time we'll ever be able to use that. Have you have you ever seen the the unexpected John Cena meme? No, Am no. I, I think I saw it in Trainwreck. Is no. that what you, you were talking about? It's, well? it's it's a modern day Rick Ross. I referenced it when I when I first be doing the interview. But he uh, this is like you'll see like a video on the internet with something really poignant, and then at the end you'll just hear this voice go, and his name is John Cena, and then it plays his music from the ring. So it's uh, sure it's a it's a more brawny Rick Roll. Wow. Okay. And uh, good choice of uh, movie eventually. Uh, an interesting one. So that is Revenge of the Sith. That scene is actually from Revenge of the Sith. It is, and the line is, "This is how democracy dies with thunderous applause." But apart from that, it was it was tip top. Yeah, yeah, all good. Uh, all right, let's talk now about the week's movie news, of which I would say there has been a fair old glut. Mm. There's been lots of stuff happening. Where do we want to start, and when do we want to start there? Uh, shall we start with good news for Dexter Fletcher? Bad news for Brian Singer. I think we should. Brian Singer uh, was fired uh, publicly. We will not, uh, not let, creative... him go. let him go. We you... will not. Sorry. Um, <laughs> not creative differences. Out of a canon. Not a part departure of ways. Not literally that way. Okay. I apologise. Um, from Bohemian Rhapsody, which is the Queen movie, as in know. Freddie Mercury, not as in The Crown, and um, and he has been replaced by Eddie the Eagle's Dexter Fletcher, who's taking over. Had he um, been replaced by Eddie the Eagle now. No, that would be a you surprise. Had, you had my attention, now you have my curiosity. Or is it the other way around? I can never remember. Yes, it not, doesn't make any sense, that quote, but people seem to like it. Um, 
But it is good news that the film's going ahead because all the word has been that Rami Malek's uh, performance as Freddie Mercury is fantastic. He certainly looks the part. They've got a really good cast together, Ben Hardy, Joseph Mazzello and um, Gwilym Lee as well. So, you know, it sounds good. It's planned for Christmas Day next year in the US and hopefully Fletcher will be able to make the date. It was a bit of a shock story. I mean, this is a bit of a shock story, isn't it? Because um, this doesn't often happen. So, no. Brian Singer was why was he fired? He was fired for basically. Um, it seemed to be not turning up to work. Essentially, he didn't really yeah. come back from his Thanksgiving break. So, yeah, and, and there was a little bit of there, there were certainly reports of sort of um, inconsistent working practices. Essentially, Dexter Fletcher was attached to direct this movie initially back in the day, and has proved himself at the helm of a musical with the. Very, very lovely, Sunshine and Leith. Yeah. Uh, is also attached to another musical, Rocket Man, the Elton John biopic, uh, which I hope happens with Taron Edgerton. I think it's a good choice, a solid choice. It's intriguing with three weeks left of filming, and this isn't a case, of course, like the the Star Wars, the Han Solo situation. Yeah. It is intriguing to see further developments in this case, uh, if anything shall arise over the next few weeks. So there we go. Keep our eyes on that one. Uh, anything else happening? Just loads of things. Star loads of things. Star Trek. Star Trek. Very exciting Star Trek news. Uh, Quentin Tarantino's pitched a story, a concept, an idea, a thought. Yeah. What? I know. Nuts, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that was my reaction. I was like, mm-hmm, what? Um, yeah, so I, my understanding is he has no intention of directing this. That it's more likely he'll take a story credit and maybe a producing credit. Because it, it was reported as directing for a minute there. Yeah, but I don't think that's actually accurate. Okay, so he's pitched an idea. They've put together a writer's room to kind of flesh it out. I mean, God only knows what the idea is. Mm. But, I mean, the mind boggles, doesn't it? it <laughs> I, think, I think a writer's room is probably safe because the, the way that the world responded to one use of the F-bomb <laughs> in Discovery, yeah. you know, you have to worry about what a, a Quentin Tarantino Star Trek would, would sound like. Literally can't think of anything I'd want to see more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 my mind is just a bit boggled. Um, it's, it's one of those cases of two things that you never expected to be put together being put together and, and you don't really know how to react. Like another news story, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. I, it, it, mm, I, oh, I mean, cool. See. A Klingon, bli- uh, a Klingon bride butchering people in, like, the House of Blue Gacht. I think that'd be fantastic. Yes, that's exactly what this Star Trek's going to be. It's going sure. to be Quentin Tarantino basically doing his greatest hits, but just in Klingon. That's, yeah. that's what it's going to be. Um, exactly if, my understanding. If this ever happens, because I, I, uh, I'm sceptical it'll oh. come together, there, there was, of course, talk after Star Trek Beyond came out that they were going to push ahead with a Star Trek 14 uh, or Star Trek Four, depending on their point of view. Sure. With this cast, with the uh, the new reboot cast, uh, that would incorporate Chris Hemsworth as George Kirk. There would be there some sort of time reports, travel thing yeah. going on. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek Beyond disappointed at the box office, so I think talk about that just kind of quietly went away. And I think you would need something crazy, insane for Paramount to go. Okay, this thing that doesn't make us a lot of money initially anyway mm. we needed we need to go back and, and do it and Tarantino being involved not a huge surprise I think he has sprinkled references to Star Trek throughout mm-hmm. his work and he certainly has in the past expressed an interest in getting involved with other people's franchises i.e. James Bond and Casino Royale and all that he's directed episodes of CSI and ER so he's not he's not a first to that I'm intrigued by this but I do wonder about this idea that a writer's room is being put together right now to come up with the ideas based from based off Quentin's big idea. The Quentin Tarantino, one of the greatest writers on earth, 
uh, is going to take other people's ideas. I'm not so sure that's going to work. I think, and he's obviously committed as well to his next movie, his ninth movie, which is this Charles Manson related film that we don't really know that much about at the moment. No, yeah. Uh, except it has, uh, it's got a lot of heat. Sony are behind it. Uh, they're looking at casting big, big names in it. Uh, and it's going to somehow revolve around the murder of Sharon Tate at the hands of the Manson family. And it has yeah. a release date at the moment in the States. The the release date at the moment in the States is August 9th, 2019. That is the 50th anniversary to the day of the murder of Sharon Tate That's and the four other people who were killed. A little night. bit unpleasant. Now, if that's a coincidence, okay. It seems if unlikely. it's not... It's a little bit icky. If it's a coincidence, they should shift the film's release date mm. yeah. immediately. And if it's not, they should shift the film's release yes, date immediately. Quite. Of course, you could see that he's, you know, it's been intended to some sort of weird tribute and the heart's in the right place. But for me, it just, the, the connotations are not great. No. But uh, we're still excited about that. And yeah. Tarantino, who said all along for a long, long time that he would direct 10 films and then go, quit. And if his 10th film is the Star Trek movie to end all Star Trek movies... Uh, wait, wait, wait. Let's not talk about this ending thing. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> then I'll be fairly happy with that. You know, we'll see how, we'll see I how mean, it goes. Yeah, if he has a great idea, then fantastic. I would like to see Star Trek boldly going beyond the next generation. That would be super good at this point. Absol- Enough with the Could tinkering Could I just say, around. they never finished the storyline of Deep Space Nine. I am still sitting here waiting to find out what happens to Cisco. I need to know. Can someone please make this? Entirely well, fair. Who's to say this is, of course, the still working with the cast? Who's to say this is the, the Kirk, Spock, Bones, Scotty... I'm not cast. saying it is, but I'm just it, saying I hope it will not be. Tarantino there. strikes me as an original series man. Yeah, he doesn't he strike me as a next-gen slash DS9 person. 100%. But Tarantino working on a movie like this, the Tarantino who, whenever the time Kill Bill came out, spoke to R. Mark Dinning and gave me uh, gave a quote that I will never, ever forget about CGM movies. He said, basically, if I want to see something like that, I stick my dick in a Nintendo. Uh, so <laughs> I mean, did someone explain to him that's not how it works? Yeah. <laughs> I really yeah. hope they did. You have controllers, it's... Yeah. Oh, that's not also not helpful. Right. Anyway, okay. um, <laughs> yeah. So, well, you know, it's it's a certainly an intriguing idea, and if he has a, an amazing idea, uh, notion for it, then then all the better. Uh, there is other news though. I, I did mention something that was a bizarre mix of things that made no sense on the face of it, and that's Ryan Reynolds starring uh, yes. in Detective Pikachu. Pikachu turns detective, um, and he's a sidekick to a tiny child trying to solve a mystery. <laughs> I just, I don't know what to do. Literally, (laughs) my entire experience of Pokemon is running around the XL at Star Wars Celebration catching the bastards on the floor. In Pokemon Go, that is I remember you doing entire, that. Yes. Yeah, that was my, I, I flirted with that game for one weekend while we were doing Celebration when we camped the Empire office in in Celebration, uh, and I caught a number of Squirtles. Uh, which you must is, be so proud. Is not an STD, uh, and and you know it was it was weird. It was a weird game, and I've stopped playing it. But this is, I mean, this is a, a, a weird and delightful prospect, and I kind of look forward to the internet wits who will inevitably dub. Deadpool's dialogue onto anything that Ryan Reynolds does <laughs> oh, in a children's no. film. Um, oh no! But uh, I, I mean, that's a thing that's happening. So I, oh. I don't know what else to say. Detective Pikachu, you shit spackled Muppet fart. <laughs> that is wrong. It is so wrong. In other news, we have Rob Marshall considering uh, the directing job on The Little Mermaid. That is so wrong. 
I mean, you know, he's. A, I can see why you would. He's a, a experienced hand with musicals. It will be a musical. We were talking about those before. Yes. Dexter Fletcher is otherwise engaged. Um, <laughs> Dexter Fletcher direct all musicals <laughs> at the same time. He has to direct Little Mermaid, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. That's going to be a two, three week job. Yeah, it'll be it's fine. fine. And then uh, Rocket Man, but at the same time. Well, I can't see why that would be a problem. Um, but Marshall is finishing up on Mary Poppins Returns, even though that's not even due out until Christmas 2018. It would be a re-team with the leading man in that film, Lin-Manuel Miranda. I don't know if we've mentioned him before. We probably haven't. Um, we but should he's also podcast. Yeah, we should. Um, he's also working with Alan Menken, obviously, on the music for the film, which Alan Menken originally wrote for the animated movie. So he's going to be adding in some new stuff. So he is he going to be in the film as well? Who knows? This is interesting. He'd make an excellent Sebastian. You had my attention. Now you have my curiosity. But Rob Marshall, I don't particularly rate as a director. I quite enjoyed Chicago, but I think that's because I like the songs. Uh, but I think everything else he's made since has been largely dreadful. Uh, <laughs> nevertheless, I look forward to Mary Poppins Returns. Every day is Christmas Eve here at Empire Magazine. And it will be Christmas Eve by the time that comes out, so hurrah. Oh my God, everything is coming together. Look at that. It's everything. just like the Christmas movie of all, Die Hard. Oh, good Lord. Extraordinary times. Um, what else has happened? Uh, House of Cards has officially had a spaceyectomy. So that's Indeed, a thing. yes. It's going to continue with Robin Wright at the, uh, well, in the chair, in the office, at the desk. It's kind of doable from the end of last season. I think that'll work really well. I mean, well. honestly, after last season, does anybody care? If it's Robin Wright in charge, you bet you do. Yeah, I, do. Would, I mean, and she has long been one of the great things in House of Cards, but the last season was such a mess. Um, I think a lot of the goodwill that series has, has, has earned has, has maybe evaporated. At I this think point. I think people will care. I think I think the first episode, at least of season six, is probably going to be the most watched episode in the show's history. And you know how it's going to start, right? With the president being abducted by aliens. No, with uh, with a figure shot from behind who <laughs> looks a lot like Frank Underwood walking onto a train platform. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if they don't throw him under a train, they've missed enough. They've got to. They've got to literally throw him under the train. Yeah, maybe and Rooney Mara should come in and do it. Maybe she should to make it quite meta. Maybe she should. Yeah. Spoilers there for season two of House of Cards, everybody. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's what that, that is happening as well. Here's some interesting news. Okay, so this is I've I've just read this for the first time. So Peter Farrelly is going solo. Uh, so the Farrelly brothers are becoming the Farrelly brother, <gasps> and he's directing a film that sounds to me like a lot like he is swinging for an Oscar nom next year. I don't necessarily. I've met Peter Farrelly. We've had him on the podcast. Mm-hmm. He's a fun guy. He's mm-hmm. a nice guy. He's, I love a lot of his movies, but I've never really put him together with Oscar nominations. Maybe he saw what Adam McKay did with the Big Short and thought, "I want a piece of that action." So the film in question is called Green Book. It's going to star a couple of up and coming people that you've never really heard of: uh, Figo Mortensen, Figo Mortensen, Mahersh, Mahersh, Mahershala Ali. These names ring a bell. Linda Card, Linda, Linda Cardellini. Oh wait, these are famous people. Linda Cardellini, Mahershal Ali, and Fico Mortensen are all going to star in this film. It is about a true, it's a true story. Italian, Italian American bouncer, 1962, called Tony Lip, who was hired to drive one of the world's finest jazz pianists, uh, Dr. Don Shirley, uh, on a concert tour through the country. And uh, they experienced racism along the way and people trying to, you know, take advantage of them and attack them and all sorts of stuff. And hey, you know what? A friendship grew and was forged in the fires of that. Uh, so this is very intriguing. And Farley co-wrote the screenplay. Starts shooting very, very soon. I say keep an eye on this one. Yeah. This is going to be interesting. Fair enough. Unless it's a Dumb and Dumber prequel, <laughs> I don't think I don't think it will be. 
I just don't think it will be. But a lot of the Farley Brothers movies involve road trips. Now I've, now I've come to think of it. Hmm. Interesting. Pull over. Is it? <laughs> it is interesting, Helen. Okay. <laughs> it is interesting. Okay, what else has happened? There's loads and loads of stuff is happening uh, in the world of movies. Well, James Mangold is directing Elle Fanning in a Paddy Hearst film, so we're obviously still waiting for All the Money in the World, which is the other great kidnapping drama of the 70s, obviously a Getty in that case. Paddy Hearst was the heiress who was abducted and um, sort of uh, basically was kind of co-opted or was kind of, I don't know, brainwashed, whatever. Indoctrinated by her captors, basically. Uh, So it's a a potentially very... um, very complex and quite interesting like story, I think. Helsinki Syndrome. As in Helsinki, <laughs> Sweden. Am I right? Thanks. Oh my James. God. Wow. He's going to write the script as well, based yeah. on the book um, See, by. Yes. I'm intrigued by this because last week it came out that he was going to direct a book based on a kid's film. A book based on a kid's film? Wait a minute. A film based on a kid's book I like to think see I just want to make sure you're paying attention Helen I'm Thanks, looking out for Chris. the deliberate mistakes so it's a film based on a kid's book do not ask me to remember what that's called brilliant but he's also attached and I thought this was his next film The Force which is based on the Don Winslow book about corrupt MIPD cop and his a cabal of equally corrupt MIPD cops uh, I thought that was going to be the next thing to go for him but suddenly he's attached to all sorts of things he's like a limpet just attaching himself liberally to things He's on that window right now. Look at him. I'm not going to look. Get off, Mangold! Was Damn it... you. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he'll be busy with one of them, whichever one goes first. Yes. Whichever one the, the financing comes together for it tends to be the one that goes first. Am I imagining things? Or is the Disney Fox thing back on the table now? Because this was there and then it went away very quickly and now it seems to have returned. Yes, it does. It seems to have returned. Um, and I, I thought about this, my knee jerk on this originally was amazing, X-Men in the MCU. And then I started thinking about it, and I thought, I can't imagine a Disney that puts out films like Deadpool or Logan or, you know, adults, because it's just not their thing. And and then I started to think about all the badness that could come. It's not, it, no, just no. I, I, uh, I, again, if this happens and gets confirmed, we'll discuss it at great length on the podcast uh, when it happens. Again, a lot of people's, and my knee-jerk reaction, and, and it was mainly just to get some lols on Twitter, was, oh my God, X-Men in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, Hulk fighting the thing, uh, it's, gonna, it's all going to happen, oh, it's great! Uh, but I actually think it's a, it's it's potentially a bad thing. It's a terrifying notion in some ways, isn't it? Because, again, much as I too would love... X-Men and Avengers together. You could do A versus X. You could do A versus X babies. <gasps> anyway, um, but Note more importantly... never put Helen in charge of Disney. <laughs> <laughs> no, A versus X babies is hilarious. The, the like X-Men babies? No, the X-Men... Well, kind of, yeah. The X-Men kidnap Bucky Bear and Cap has to call his friends to try and get Bucky Bear back and they have a whole fight in the street. Helen, it's adorable. Who, Helen, what's a Bucky Bear? It's a bear that's like Bucky... Is this what? <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's adorable. A versus X babies. Look it up. That's it's, not the point. That's not the point I'm trying to make. The, the point I'm trying to make is yes. The point I'm trying to make is uh, people are beginning to talk about monopolies again, which is something that was sort of meant to have been sorted out at the end of the 19th century, <laughs> um, <laughs> and we are now in a position as a world, as a society, where we have a tiny number of companies that occupy an enormous role in our lives. This historically has proven bad. Um, And, you know, 
gradually people are beginning to think that it might be bad. Now, obviously, we love and adore Walt Disney and all who sail in him, but just owning so much of our intellectual headspace is kind of crazy and there's no way to break that up a sort of intellectual monopoly like that there is no precedent for that and it is incredibly think weird to think about they already own basically our entire childhoods this would give them the only bits they don't uh, of course you could argue that it would greatly enrich a certain individual who i would argue does not deserve to be further greatly enriched fair uh, Tony Stark. <laughs> yeah, this is true. He'd be rubbing. He'd be rubbing it in. Oh my <laughs> word! He'll God, be really He'll be, he'll be he'd rolling in it. Uh, but yes, let's, let's discuss that uh, as when it happens. Very very quickly, the girl in the spider's web has found it's Mikhail Blomqvist, and that is the star of Borg slash McEnroe, Sverre Gudnason. So, oh yeah. Well done, him. Well done. And uh, we are delighted, of course, by news that Alice Eve has joined the cast of Marvel's Iron Fist Season (laughs) 2, in which Danny Rand, the immortal Iron Fist, goes around telling people that he is Danny Rand, the immortal Iron Fist, until someone punches him repeatedly in the face. Sounds ideal, actually. (laughs) Hopefully Alice Eve will punch him in the face. It does sound um, credible, certainly. And it does seem that Iron Fist really is immortal if he got a second season, even on Netflix. He should be dead, and yet he's not. How do they not spot this? Kurt Russell's going to play Santa Claus. I know, and so you've got a new contender for most Christmassy film of all time. Ho, ho, ho. Get that in a t-shirt. Uh, right, so it's a live-action movie, he's going to be Santa Claus, and it's going to be the greatest movie ever made. So there you go. It, that's what it says here. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's really what it says. Show me your screen. I hope, it's, I hope it's... Oh, my God, I wanted to be Santa Claus, and his elves are being slowly taken over one by one. They're being assimilated by this alien thing. That and a the thing, Hulk, you might say. A thing, who knows. Um, and then Disney buy the thing, and it starts fighting the Hulk, and it all kicks off, and the end is Santa Claus sitting in... Uh, the, his burning compound, drinking some whiskey and laughing, uh, while Mrs. Claus and they're just going to say, "Yeah, let's just let's just wait here for a little while, see what happens." Your your mind is a strange place. All right, time now for our last guests this week, and they are double trouble. They are the brothers Franco, Dave, and James. They have known each other since mm, uh, since Dave was born. Wow. Pretty much, yeah. It's a long-standing relationship. When did you first meet your brother, Dave Franco? They are teaming up this week on The Disaster Artist, which is the tale of how Tommy Wiseau made The Room, which is widely considered to be one of the worst, and maybe even the worst movies ever made. But uh, that tale of adversity has been turned into a tale of weird triumph with The Disaster Artist, which has been tipped for Oscars, not least, of course, with James Franco, who also directed the film as well. Uh, John Nugent spoke to them both when they came into London just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, do enjoy the interview. James Franco and Dave Franco, welcome to the Empire Podcasts. Thank you. Thank How you. are you doing, yeah. bro? Everything's great, man. Yeah. 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 Um, we are here to talk about The Disaster Artist, um, which is the first collaboration between the two of you. Why is that? Like, why? What, what's taking it so long? <laughs> yeah, Dave, what's taking it? Yeah, this is on me. Um, no, just when I was first starting out, I, I did make a choice to go off on my own in regards to work stuff just because I I wanted to pave my own path and I wanted to just do my own thing and not be referred to as James Franco's little brother for the rest of my life. And so I <laughs> feel like I hopefully did that. Um, and it just felt like the right timing and the right project and um, and the right dynamic between these characters. We really We really understood them and... Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that 
I did say yes just because it ended up being one of the more enjoyable experiences I've had on set. Yeah. Now I have to hear like, oh, I love your brother. <laughs> <laughs> you don't hear that that Oh, often. yeah, I hear it all the time. But I bet your mom must be happy that you're finally like playing together. Right? She just came to the premiere yeah. and um, yeah, I sat one seat away from her and there were sounds she was making uh, uh, yeah sounds I, I, I never sat heard next before. to her she was just <laughs> i mean when the entire audience was silent she was just squealing and uh she there was just so many emotions going through her she didn't know how to process it all <laughs> so uh so for those who don't know then this is about the room which is obviously that you know famously the world's many people think is the world's worst film best worst film best worst film yes yeah um, and so what, where, where did you which means it's very watchable it's very watchable so I'm assuming you guys have watched it many times over right like oh, what yeah. was your first it's probably more than any other film yeah, yeah. <laughs> really it, it, absolutely <laughs> wow How, what does that do to your psyche when you've seen <laughs> weirdly enough film more than good films but yeah. here's the thing you're right I remember um, Don Cheadle just um, uh, introduced a, a, a screening of our film, The Disaster Artist, and he talked about um, Kristen Bell, who was on his show, mm-hmm. holding these room screenings. Kristen Bell, by the way, is like the biggest room fan. Uh, She's right. probably seen it a hundred times. Yeah. And he kept saying to her, like, I don't want to see it if it's just bad. Like, that's going to depress me. Like, <laughs> if it's just bad. And I can kind of understand, because sometimes when I see a bad film, like when I see a good film... It inspires me, and you and yeah. you think you know optimistically, like, oh wow, I can do that, or I want to reach for that. Yeah. And then when you see a bad film, you think, oh wait, is that is that what my stuff comes <laughs> off like? You know what I mean? Because yeah, yeah. every nobody wants to make a bad film. Nobody goes yeah. into a film thinking it, they're going to make a bad one. You know, yeah, except yeah. you know sometimes people will do like something campy on purpose or something. But when people are really trying, they're 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 trying to make something good. Yeah. And um. I can see the magic behind the room. And and a lot of that is because I know the story behind it. I've read the the book, The Disaster Artist, and Greg Sestero, um, the other actor in the room, um, and um, this journalist, Tom Bissell, wrote this incredible book. And mm. so even though the room didn't turn out like Tommy intended, um, I know all the effort and sweat and passion and heart and soul that went into the making of it and i can really appreciate it for that because the the, the the film in the disaster is kind of it's not just about how this film is made but it's also about like you know the the joy of filmmaking and hollywood and 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 yeah the creative exactly process. which is you know can be applied to the making of any movie right. of our favorite movies you know the same amount of passion is involved it's just that tommy made a bunch of used that passion to fuel a bunch of strange <laughs> odd decisions right the yeah the behind the scenes of the room that we portray in our film is just a small just a small section of the film mm. and ultimately uh we so we knew the challenge from the get-go was how are we gonna make our movie appeal to people who have never even heard of the room Mm -hmm. and because we have this story of friendship and dreamers surrounding everything 
we we had you know that's a that's a very relatable relatable thing that anyone who has ever tried to make it in the arts can you know can latch on to yeah absolutely so then uh greg uh, dave you played greg and and james you play tommy tommy yeah um tommy wiser <laughs> so i mean can you t- tell me how you developed that that sort of weird eastern european accents uh he, he sort of sounds like he's got a frog in his throat the whole time Tommy sound like this and you'd <laughs> guess it was from Eastern Europe but he said he from New Orleans all American accent and all American guy and and it is sort of Eastern European but it's like it's yeah. been distorted by you know him trying to get rid of it of whatever I don't know whatever the course of you know his life took him on but um so the only way to really get it was to go to the source. Now, right. um, the room is actually all redubbed. Uh, and you'd think a guy that was like trying to get rid of his Eastern European accent, if he was dubbing the whole thing, he would do a better job than he had done. But he sounded like this in the whole movie. Oh, hi, Mark. You know, oh, hi, doggy. Uh, you can imagine what it sounded like originally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, but I also had this piece of preparation gold Tommy used to drive around in his car and talk to himself on a mini recorder oh, wow. and 20 years ago his f- good friend Greg stole a bunch of these tapes as good friends do <laughs> <laughs> and digitized them and so when I got ready to play Tommy he gave those recordings to me and I would listen to them over and over and um, just you know repeat the th- you know back what Tommy was saying to himself um, and so I it really helped getting the voice down but in addition um, uh, it gave me a real insight into Tommy's sort of private world now Tommy knows I have the tapes he calls them a oh, secret tape I know you have them James <laughs> you know but um, and in addition you know Tommy is like He's just fun to do. Like, everybody wants to do Tommy. I remember reading the book for the first time aloud to my friends and, and assistant, and we would, we would you know, switch off reading aloud to each other, and everybody just had loved doing the Tommy voice. It's just, it's like the new Tony Montana or something, yeah. you know? Yeah. Everybody's got a, their own version of it. So, so Tommy and Greg, they, I mean, they fully participated in this movie, right? They, they gave permission for their rights. And did you, you spoke to them beforehand? Was there, like, what was the most surprising thing you learned from, from speaking to them? Yeah, I, I was able to speak with Greg a few times before we started filming. And then he was on set throughout the entire production. And I, I obviously, I picked his brain about everything, but I was specifically curious um, why he was drawn to Tommy in the first place and why he stuck with him through this crazy journey for as mm-hmm. long as he did. And Greg talked a lot about how when he was a young actor, um, everyone in his life was telling him that he wasn't going to make it, that this was an impossible goal. And then he met Tommy, who encouraged him and believed in him. And so Greg Greg found this teammate and, and like this, this ally uh, where when you're a young actor, that's invaluable. And like, that's something I can absolutely relate to. And then I also was curious um, if during production of The Room, Greg ever believed that the room could be a good film and uh, he claims he didn't but I uh, I don't fully believe him just because again as a young actor it's the most exciting thing in the world just to get on set Mm. and so once you're on set it's like 
you you almost have to have this blind optimism and hope that things are going to turn out great even though everyone from the outside can see that what you're working on is objectively bad and i've been in those scenarios where i've been working on things that i thought were going really well and people on set were talking about awards and i bought into the hype and then the movie came out and not only was it not good it was a piece of shit and so you just again you just go into it and you put everything you have into a project and you just never know which way it's going to go and then, like the room, you had the billboards in LA, right? You had the yeah. The, when Tommy Tommy paid for the room, it cost six million dollars. Yeah. Uh, part of that was because he just bought all the equipment unnecessarily and the lights <laughs> and cameras and everything. Yeah. And But um, he also distributed it and paid for this billboard that was this fixture in LA for five years. And five um, yeah, so that's hundreds of thousands of dollars right there to keep that billboard up that long. Yeah. Um, and it was very odd. It was his face with the lazy eyelids glaring down at you and said the room and there was a phone number. I remember passing it hundreds of times and just really not understanding what it was, you know, because what movie billboard has a phone number on it? <laughs> and um, anyway, A24 in the States has now recreated that billboard but with my photo as Tommy and um, a new phone number right. that um, might go to Tommy, might go to me, who knows. So you have that, that cell phone then? Do you, if you Somebody pay, has it. Have you, have you received any phone calls? Have you? There have been over 100,000 phone calls, wow. maybe 200,000. I mean, what, what is the purpose of, I mean, I'm curious what Tommy thought the purpose of the, pho- the phone, what, like what's? The original phone number I learned went directly to his apartment and he would tell you, you know, <laughs> go see the room at sunset five at midnight. But he would also, and sometimes he would keep people on the line and talk to them for hours about, you know, his next movie deal or whatever, <laughs> you know, getting into the new Star Wars movie or something. Yeah. And, um, and it was, I think a way to connect to his fans. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah. So your film, I think it was an unfinished cut, but it premiered at South by Southwest, right? Yes. At yes. The, the midnight screening. Yes. I mean, what was that like? Because I, I read reports that said it was pretty electric screening. That, that was the best screening either of us will ever experience really? in our lives. Yeah, it was, um, what can I say? I mean, going into it, I almost didn't feel nervous just because there were too many huge expectations of our movie at the time and we loved it and you know that's what else can you ask for and so we went in it not knowing how people were going to react we figured south by would be the perfect audience for it because uh it's a bunch of film lovers and they go into these movies wanting to have a good time but it ended up being just like a rock concert like to the point where you couldn't hear half of the lines um but yeah, I mean, I I don't even have a second place in terms of like best uh, experiences of premiering a movie of my own. It, yeah, for sure, it was uh, it was the screening of a lifetime, uh, standing ovation. It was also the first time that Tommy saw the film. Oh wow! And so, even though we were you know so happy with the response, we kept looking down the row at Tommy to gauge his reaction and. He was pretty subdued. He wasn't really laughing that much during the movie. Did he uh, watch the whole movie with his sunglasses on? Yeah, he wears shades, <laughs> even when he's in the movie theater. So he may not have seen the full movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah who knows (laughs) whatever kind of seeped through uh um i i asked him afterwards i was like so uh what do you think and he's like well i approve i approve 99.9 percent and okay we were i was kind of a a relief yeah and i was like what's the point one percent he's like well you know you think he'd be like I never said that. I never. But he said, um, "I think you should look at lighting in the beginning of film a little <laughs> off." And as, it's like, all right, I'll tell Brandon, my my DP, to go look at the room. Well, now we're just remembering that he washed it through his sunglasses. Yeah, ah! it's definitely gonna be off. <laughs> <laughs> was it a little dark? <laughs> yeah, the whole film was really dark. Yeah, <laughs> very dark. And then uh, tonight, you're as we speak, you're doing a Q and A at the Prince Charles, which yes. is the London home of the Room. Well, Greg, the real Greg and, and Tommy have have told us that the best audience in the world Absolutely. for the Room is at the Prince Charles. Yeah, and uh, so that's where we're premiering our movie here. Yeah, I mean, if there's any audience you need to 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 prove it to, it's it's this one, right? I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, yeah, and I, I'm pretty confident. You know, there's been a lot of. Um, hardcore room fans that have come to our movie and they i think they leave very satisfied yeah because we honor the strangeness of the room but we give you more we give you the the heart behind it absolutely well that's a perfect moment on which to end i think all right guys thank you so much for your time thank Thank you man thank Thank you you. okay so that was the brothers franco we'll get on to the the, uh we'll get on to the disaster artist in just a few minutes but first up is stronger which is another Oscar contender starring Jake Gyllenhaal as Jeff Bauman who lost his legs in the Boston Marathon bombing a few years ago and it's a tale of how he gets himself back uh, to full health mental and physical with the help of his fiance played by Tatiana Maslany uh, Helen what did you think of this? I was a bit mixed on this one um, it's from uh, David Gordon Green and I think it, it first of all it's much better than pa- Patriot's Day for me I think it's a much more nuanced and smarter take on the bombings as they affected regular people, um, which of course was not what Patriot's Day was trying to do. But um, yeah, so uh, Gyllenhaal is on fantastic uh, form as as Jeff. Um, He is like absolutely average guy, you know, good heart, tries his best, maybe isn't quite succeeding in life as much as he wants to, but he's kind of getting by, trying to get his ex-girlfriend back. So he goes out Mm -hmm. to support her as she's doing the Boston Marathon. Um, and that is obviously Tatiana Maslany who, from Orphan Black, who is one of the most phenomenal actresses today. If you see her in that show, it's incredible. Her eight, 18 different performances in it. Um, is that all? Hmm? Is that all? At least. Yeah. And sometimes she plays one of the clones disguised as another clone, and you can t- still tell which clone it is, even though she looks exactly... Anyway, it's, it's amazing. She sticks her hair back. That's what you do. Uh-huh. How you differentiate. Sure. But... Um, it's a it's a weird film this because I think what it's trying to do is that on one hand it's trying to be the inspirational tale of overcoming adversity and you know the the incredible trials that Jeff went through and the way that he generally greeted those with with enormously inspiring determination and strength and and character and humor you know he has absolutely low moments and he you know he manages to get through them often with um Aaron's help the the problem for me is it also kind of wants to have its cake and eat it and sort of point out the fact that these you know he's not just an inspiring tale he is a real person this isn't just a you know this isn't something that should have happened and and something that he can kind of easily overcome and it's sort of it's a weird 
it's a weird uh, film that seems to be trying to serve two masters at once. It seems to be trying to be the inspiring, sincere, straightforward movie, but also kind of undermine that and undercut it. And and I, I get what they're trying to do, and I think it's very yeah. worthy. I just don't know that it always f- sits together brilliantly. Yeah, I'm kind of with you there. I, th- I felt it was a little bit more effective than that, a little bit more successful. But that's largely down to the performances, which are really, really great. It has seen. It does seem to have fallen away in the Oscar race. I thought for sure Jake Gyllenhaal would be a contender for Best Actor. I don't really see his name mentioned that much, but he really goes for it in this movie. He, he does. Really yeah. gives it his all. Uh, Tatiana Maslany is also very good, as is Miranda Richardson as his mum, who is a very, very down to earth Bostonian. Uh, really good accent as well, but you expect that from Miranda Richardson. She's fantastic. But Jake Gyllenhaal, this is a performance. You know, he's yeah, he really. Uh, captures the, the, the mental and physical atrophying that uh, I think Jeff Bauman uh, underwent. Uh, there's uh, one sequence where he's crawling after his, his girlfriend, which is just absolutely, she may be his wife by that point actually, yeah. uh, which is absolutely heartrending. Uh, and he's fully, completely and utterly committed, as he was with the likes of Southpaw and Nightcrawler. Sure. Uh, I don't know necessarily that it is going to result in an Oscar nomination, but he is very, very good. And if you're going to go see it, uh, it is quite uplifting, I think. Ultimately, it's quite it is it is quite affecting. But its decision to remove itself, I think, emotionally as much as you can, and not to tread through the you know the the the, the cornfield of cliches. Is that a cliche in itself? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've never heard that before. Cornfield. I think of you're cliches. okay. I think I just coined that. Am I genius? I think I am. Uh, the yes. decision not to do that is. Uh, I think ultimately maybe detrimental to the film in a weird way but still good stuff well acted Uh, three stars three stars then for Stronger Uh, which brings us on to The Disaster Artist which may see James Franco nominated again for Best Actor it could do yes so um uh, this is the tale of the making of The Room, uh, famously possibly the worst film of all time, certainly a really bad one. I've never seen it. Um, I have to confess I haven't either, but you can you get enough from this film that I don't think that's necessarily a handicap. Mm. Um, although I hear great things about, for example, the Pr- Prince Charles Midnight Screenings and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, they have a regular room slot. Apparently you should throw spoons at the screen. I don't know. <laughs> anyway... Um, <laughs> so this is the story of the making of and uh, James Franco plays Tommy Wiseau who's the director of the film um, uh, Dave Franco plays Greg Sestero who becomes his sort of leading man and best friend and they very sincerely tell the story of this completely bizarre guy trying to make his film and they sort of take him seriously ish, mostly and you know say that he really intended to make a great film and it's he just didn't couldn't maybe um <laughs> there is a little bit of snark creeps in that's mostly f- through Seth Rogen's character if you've seen the trailer you'll know exactly what i mean yeah. um so you can see that people were aware that this was disastrous mm-hmm. um but it is um but it is uh, it's a really it's a really gr- interesting mix of drama and it's kind of tragicomic, actually, because you feel for the characters and you want them to succeed, and you know that they absolutely won't. And uh, and yet they are. There are moments of just complete madness that you can't help but laugh at. So it's it's a pretty fine tightrope that they've walked here, and I think mm. they've done it really, really impressively. Um, John, in his review, said it's La La Land for losers, which I think is is not unfair. 
yeah, it's um, it's pretty good stuff. It makes you want to walk on air and make a bad film. <laughs> sort of does, but it's 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 a it's a sweet sort of a tribute yeah. to to a, a massive failure. <laughs> It's a weird companion piece to the Jim Carrey documentary, the Jim and Andy documentary, yeah. which came out because that's a film that makes you want to watch another film. It's a film you watch that and you go, oh, I want to revisit Man on the Moon now. And even the Truman Show, which I rewatched recently because of that documentary. Mm. Uh, and I think it's the same with this. I, I do want to watch The Room now, which I've never, ever wanted to do before. <laughs> uh, but I, I am scared, so hold me. So uh, four stars for The Disaster Artist. And then the last film this week, uh, only I've seen it in this room, and it is Takashi Miike's 100th movie as director uh, he is incredibly prolific Talk he is the director of Audition and Ichi the Killer and The Happiness of the Katakuris and 97 other movies this is the 100th and this is a, a fantastic martial arts epic it's about Manji who's a, a samurai warrior played by Takuya Kimura uh, and he at the beginning of the movie loses his sister in a to a to an evil warlord, and he is himself run through with with, with swords, but he is imbued with a with a curse by a, or or blessing, who knows, by sure. a, an old lady that basically he will live forever. He has these worms that he puts into his blood system, and they basically suck out any wounds that he gets. He lives for a long time, and he then finds himself assisting a young girl many years later, who reminds him of his sister. So much so, in fact, she's played by the same actress. <gasps> Uh, and he gets involved in a battle with uh, an uh, a, a, an equally evil tyrant. And uh, some of the the fight sequences in this, some of the the battle sequences in this, are absolutely astonishing. Really, really great. Uh, I reviewed it for the magazine. I gave it four stars. This is really, really good stuff. Along the lines of Thirteen Assassins, so go and see it. Blade of the Immortal. Uh, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for the last podcast of. Oh yeah, Ever? I should finish the sentence, shouldn't I? Uh, Thank God. The last podcast of 2017, uh, when we'll be joined by... Who are we going to be joined by? Oh, oh... Uh, Somebody huge, I hope. Uh, someone who's into huge action. Yeah. I don't well, know. Eh, probably nothing. Probably nothing. Um, oh yeah, that's right. Uh, it's Jack Human. We'll be joined by him. And uh, we're going to be joined by Karen Gillen as well. That's not a bad way to go out in 2017. It's pretty sweet. Uh, and then after that, we're going to have a review of the year podcast. That'll probably be the week after as well. So we're not going to leave you completely for a couple of weeks, but we are knocking off uh, because I've got to go and, and fight thieves taking over the Nakatomi Plaza. That's not how Christmas works. Exactly. I think you'll find it is exactly how Christmas works. Precisely. And until that auspicious occasion, it is a goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. It is a goodbye from James. Happy trails, Hans. Have you enjoyed the last 10 minutes? Yes. <laughs> I've been sitting here looking at things on my phone while you talk about films I haven't seen. Um, <laughs> sound great, though. I'm definitely going to go and see all of the ones you talked about. What do we talk about? The films. Okay, good. The ones Excellent. that are out. Uh, uh, good to see you. Someone's paying attention. <laughs> and it is goodbye from me. I am off to buy a suit from John Phillips, London. Rumour has it. Arafat buys his, though. Merry Christmas, everybody. See you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>